Chapter Five, Part Two of the Rock of Chickamauga. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rock of Chickamauga by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Five, Hunted, Part Two. Dick was unconscious a long time, but when he awoke, he found himself wrapped in a blanket while another was doubled under his head. It was pitchy dark, but he beheld the outline of a human figure sitting by his side. He strove to rise, but a powerful hand on his shoulder pushed him back, though gently, and a low voice said, Stay still, Mr. Mason. We mustn't make any sound now. Dick recognized in dim wonder the voice of Sergeant Daniel Whitley. How he had come there at such a time, and what he was doing now, was past all guessing. But Sergeant Whitley was a most competent man. He knew more than most generals, and he was filled with the lore of the woods. He would trust him. He let his head sink back on the folded blanket, and his heavy eyes closed again. When Dick roused from his stupor, the sergeant was still by his side, and as his eyes grew used to the darkness, he noticed that Whitley was really kneeling rather than sitting, crouched to meet danger, his finger on the trigger of a rifle. Dick's brain cleared, and he sat up. "'What is it, sergeant?' he whispered. "'I see you're all right now, Mr. Mason,' the sergeant whispered back. "'But be sure you don't stir. "'Is it the Johnnies? "'Lean over a little and look down into that dip.' Dick did so, and saw four men hunting among the trees, and the one who seemed to be their leader was the little weazened fellow with the great flap-brimmed hat. "'They're looking for your trail,' whispered the sergeant. "'But they won't find it. "'It's too dark, even for a Sioux Indian.' and I've seen them do some wonderful things in trailing. I seem to have met you in time, Sergeant. So you did, sir, but more of that later. Perhaps you'd better lie down again, as you're weak yet. I'll tell you all they do. I'll take your advice, Sergeant, but am I sound and whole? I felt something in me break, and then the earth rose up and hit me in the face. I reckon it was just the last ounce of breath going out of you with a pop. They're hunting hard, Mr. Mason, but they can't pick up the trace of a footstep. Slade must be mad clean through. Slade! Slade! Who's Slade? Slade is a spy partly, and an outlaw mostly, because he often works on his own hook. He's the weazened little fellow with so much hat-brim, and he's about twenty different kinds of a demon. You've plenty of reason to fear him, and it's lucky we've met. It's more than luck for me, Sergeant. It's salvation. I believe it wouldn't have been half as hard on me if somebody had been with me, and you're the first whom I would have chosen. Are they still in the dip, Sergeant? No, they've passed to the slope on the right, and I think they'll go over the hill. We're safe here as long as we remain quiet, that is, safe for the time. Slade will hang on as long as there's a possible chance to find us. Sergeant, if they do happen to stumble upon us in the dark, I hope you'll promise to do one thing for me. I'll do anything I can, Mr. Mason. Kill Slade first. That little villain gives me the horrors. I believe the soul of the last bloodhound I shot has been reincarnated in him. All right, Mr. Mason, returned the sergeant placidly. If we have to fight, I'll make sure of Slade at once. Is there anybody else you'd like specially to have killed? No, thank you, sergeant. I don't hate any of the others, and I suppose they'd have dropped the chase long ago if it hadn't been for this fellow whom you call Slade. Now I think I'll lie quiet while you watch. Very good, sir. I'll tell you everything I can see. They're passing over the hill out of sight, and if they return, I won't fail to let you know. 
Sergeant Whitley, a man of vast physical powers, hardened by the long service of forest and plain, was not weary at all, and in the dusk he looked down with sympathy and pity at the lad who had closed his eyes. He divined the nature of the ordeal through which he had gone. Dick's face, still badly swollen from the bites of the mosquitoes, showed all the signs of utter exhaustion. The sergeant could see, despite the darkness, that it was almost the face of the dead, and he knew that happy chance had brought him in the moment of Dick's greatest need. He ceased to whisper, because Dick, without intending it, had gone to sleep again. Then the weary veteran scouted in a circle about their refuge, but did not discover the presence of an enemy. He sat down near the sleeping lad, with his rifle between his knees, and watched the moon come out. Owing to his wilderness experience, he had been chosen also to go on a scout toward Jackson, though he preferred to make his on foot, and the sound of Dick's shots at the hounds had drawn him to an observation which finally turned into a rescue. After midnight the sergeant slept a little while, but he never awakened Dick until it was almost morning. Then he told him that he would go with him on the mission to Hertford, and Dick was very glad. "'What's become of Slade and his men?' asked Dick. "'I don't know,' replied the sergeant, "'but as they lost the trail in the night, it's pretty likely they're far from here. At any rate, they're not bothering us just now. How are you feeling, Mr. Mason?' "'Fine, except that my face still burns. We'll have to hold up a Confederate house somewhere and get oil of pennyroyal. That'll cure you.' "'But I guess you've learned now, Mr. Mason, "'that mosquitoes in a southern swamp "'are just about as deadly as bullets. "'So they are, Sergeant, "'and this is not my first experience. "'Luck has been terribly against me this trip, "'but it turned when I met you last night. "'Yes, Mr. Mason, "'in this case two rifles are better than one. "'We're prowling right through the heart of the Confederacy, "'but I'm thinking we'll make it. "'We've got a great general now, "'and we mustn't fail to bring up Colonel Hertford and his cavalry.' I've an idea in my head that General Grant is going to carry through big plans. Then I think it's time we were starting. So do I, Mr. Mason. And now will you take these crackers and smoked ham? I've plenty in my knapsack. I learned on the plains never to travel without a food supply. If a soldier starves to death, what use is he to his army? And I reckon you need something to eat. You were about tired out when I met you last night. I sure was, Sergeant. But I'm a new man this morning. You and I together can't fail. Dick, in truth, felt an enormous relief. He and his young comrades had learned to trust Sergeant Whitley implicitly, with his experience of forest and plain and his infinite resource. Where do you figure we are, Sergeant? he asked. In the deep woods, Mr. Mason. But we haven't turned much from the line, leading you to the place where you were to meet Colonel Hertford. You haven't really lost time, and we'll start again straight ahead but we've got to look out for this fellow Slade, who's as tricky and merciless as they ever make him. Tell me more about Slade, Sergeant. I don't know a lot, but I heard of him from some of our scouts. He was an overseer of a big plantation before the war. From somewhere up north, I think, but now he's more of a rebel than the rebels themselves. Often happens that way, but you've got to reckon with him. Glad I know that much. He reminds me of a man I've seen, though I can't recall where or when. It's enough, though, to watch out for Slade. Come on, Sergeant. I'm feeling so fine now that with your help I'm able to fight a whole army. The two striding through the forest started toward the meeting place with Hertford. Now that he had the powerful comradeship of Sergeant Whitley, the wilderness became beautiful instead of gloomy for Dick. The live oaks and magnolias were magnificent, and there was a wild luxuriance of vegetation. 
Birds of brilliant plumage darted among the foliage, and squirrels chattered on the boughs. He saw bear tracks again, and called the sergeant's attention to them. "'It would be nice to be hunting them instead of men,' said Whitley. "'You can find nice black fellows down here, good to eat, and it's a deal safer to hunt them than it is the grizzlies and silver tips of the Rockies.' They saw now much cleared land, mostly cotton fields, and now and then a white man or a negro working, but there was always enough forest for cover. They waded the numerous brooks and creeks, allowing their clothing to dry in the warm sun as they marched, and about two hours before sunrise the sergeant, wary and always suspicious, suggested that they stop a while. "'I've an idea,' he said, "'that Slade and his men are still following us. Oh, he's an ugly fellow, full of sin, and if they're not far behind us, we ought to know it.' "'Just as you say,' said Dick, glad enough to shift the responsibility upon such capable shoulders. How would this clump of bushes serve for a hiding place while we wait? Good enough. Indians pursued often ambush the pursuer, and as we've two good men with two good rifles, Mr. Mason, we'll just see what this slate is about. When I last saw him, said Dick, he had the two canoe men with him, and perhaps they've picked up the owner of the hounds. That's sure, and they're likely to be four. We're only two, but we've got the advantage of the ambush, and that's a big one. If you agree with me, Mr. Mason, we'll wait here for him. We were sent out to take messages, not to fight, but since these fellows hang on our trail, we may get to Colonel Hertford all the quicker because we do fight. Your opinion's mine too, Sergeant. I'm not in love with battle, but I wouldn't mind taking a shot or two at these men. They've given me a lot of trouble. The sergeant smiled. That's the way it goes, he said. You don't get mad at anybody in particular in a big battle but if two or three fellows lay around in the woods, popping away at you, you soon get so you lose any objections to killing, and you draw a bead on them as soon as a chance comes. That's the way I feel, Sergeant. It isn't Christian, but I suppose it has some sort of excuse. Of course it has. Drop a little lower, Mr. Mason. I see the bushes out there shaking. And that's the sign that Slade and his men have come. Well, I'm not sorry. Both Dick and the Sergeant lay almost flat, with their heads raised a little, and their rifles pushed forward. The bushes ceased to shake, but Dick had no doubt their pursuers were before them. They had probably divined, too, that the quarry was at bay and was dangerous. Evidently the sergeant had been correct when he said Slade was full of craft and cunning. While they waited, the spirit of Dick's famous ancestor descended upon him in a yet greater measure. Their pursuers were not Indians, but this was the deep wilderness, and they were merely on a skirt of the Great War. Many of the border conditions were reproduced, and they were to fight as borderers fought. "'What do you think they're doing?' Dick whispered. "'Feeling around for us. Slade won't take any more risk than he has to. Did you see those two birds fly away from that bough, sudden-like? I think one of the men has just crept under it. But the fellow who exposes himself first won't be Slade.' Dick's inherited instinct was strong, and he watched not only in front, but to right and left also. He knew that cunning men would seek to flank and surprise them, and he noticed that the sergeant also watched in a wide circle. He still drew tremendous comfort from the presence of the skillful veteran, feeling that his aid would make the repulse of Slade a certainty. A rifle cracked suddenly in the bushes to their right, and then another by his side cracked so suddenly that only a second came between. Dick heard a bullet whistle over their heads, but he believed that the one from his comrade's rifle had struck true. I've no way of telling just now, said the sergeant calmly, 
but I don't believe that fellow will bother any more. If we can wing another, they're likely to let us alone and we can go on. They must know by the trail that we're now two instead of one, and that their danger has doubled. Dick had felt that the danger to their pursuers had more than doubled. He had an immense admiration for the sergeant, who was surely showing himself a host. The man, trained so long in border war, was thoroughly in his element. His thick, powerful figure was drawn up in the fashion of a panther about to spring. Bulky as he was, he showed ease and grace, and wary eyes, capable of reading every sign, continually scanned the thickets. "'They know just where we are, of course,' whispered the sergeant. "'But if we stay close, they'll never get a good shot at us.' Dick caught sight of a head among some bushes and fired. The head dropped back so quickly that he could not tell whether or not his bullet sped true. After a long wait, the sergeant suggested that they creep away. "'I think they've had enough,' he said. They've certainly lost one man, and maybe two. Slade won't care to risk much more. Dick was glad to go, and, following the sergeant's lead, he crawled four or five hundred yards, a most painful but necessary operation. Then they stood up and made good time through the forest. Both would have been willing to stay and fight it out with Slade and what force he had left, but their mission was calling them, and forward they went. Do you think they'll follow us? asked Dick. I reckon they've had enough. They may try to curve ahead of us and give warning, but the salute from the muzzles of our rifles has been too warm for any more direct pursuit. Besides, we're going to have a summer storm soon, and like as not, they'll be hunting shelter. Dick, in the excitement of battle and flight, had not noticed the darkening skies and the rising wind. Clouds, heavy and menacing, already shrouded the whole west. Low thunder was heard far in the distance. It's going to be a whopper, said the sergeant, something like those big storms they have out on the plains. We must find shelter somewhere, Mr. Mason, or it will leave us so bedraggled and worn out that for a long time we won't be able to move on. Dick agreed with him entirely, but neither yet knew where the shelter was to be found. They hurried on, looking hopefully for a place. Meanwhile the storm, its van a continual blaze of lightning and roar of thunder, rolled up fast from the southwest. Then the lightning ceased for a while, and the skies were almost dark. Dick knew that the rain would come soon, and as he looked eagerly for shelter, he saw a clearing in which stood a small building of logs. A cornfield, sergeant, he exclaimed. And that, I take it, is a crib. A crib that will soon house more than corn, said the sergeant. Two good Union soldiers are about to stop there. It's likely the farmer's house itself is just beyond that line of trees, but he won't be coming out to this crib tonight. Not likely. Too much darkness and rain. Hurry, sergeant. I can hear already the rush of the rain in the forest. They ran across the field, burst open the door of the crib, leaped in and banged the door shut again, just as the van of the rain beat upon it with an angry rush. Save for a crack or two, they had no light, but they stood upon a dry floor covered deep with corn shucks and heard the rain sweep and roar upon the roof. On one side was a heap of husked corn, which they quickly piled against the door in order to hold it before the assaults of the wind, and then they sought warm places among the shucks. It was a small crib, and the rain drove in at the cracks, but it furnished abundant shelter for its two new guests. Dick had never been in a finer hotel. He lay warm and dry in a great heap of shucks, and heard the wind and rain beat vainly upon walls and roof, and the thunder rumble as it moved off toward the east. He felt to the full the power of contrast. "'Fine in here, isn't it, sergeant?' he asked. "'Fine as silk,' replied the sergeant, from his own heap of shucks. 
We played in big luck to find this place, cause I think it's going to rain hard all night. Let it. It can't get me, Sergeant. I've always known that corn is our chief staple, but I never knew before that the shucks which so neatly enclose the grains and cob were such articles of luxury. I'm lying upon the most magnificent bed in the United States, and it's composed wholly of shucks. It's no finer than mine, Mr. Mason. That's so. Yours is just like mine, and of course it's an exception. Now I wish to say, Sergeant, the rain upon the roof is so soothing that I'm likely to go to sleep before I know it. Go ahead, Mr. Mason. It's more than likely I'll follow. All trails will be destroyed by the storm, and nobody will think of looking here for us tonight. Both slept soundly, and all through the night the rain beat upon the roof. End of chapter 5, part 2